Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. We invite you to share these podcasts and our free daily meditations with your friends and family. Today, I'm joined all the way from New Zealand by award-winning musician, Strawn Coleman. Strawn is the founder of the popular ministry, Commoners Communion. Strawn has written a very beautiful book titled, Beholding, and through this, he invites readers into a deeper, richer friendship with God. The book was birthed out of Strawn's own journey of pain, depression, and anxiety, which ultimately moved his relationship with God to a much deeper level. Before we dive into the conversation, I'd like to preface this by letting you know that we face some sound and buffering issues in this podcast. I hope you listeners will listen through, since I can honestly say it's a wonderfully rich, honest, and meaningful conversation. Strawn Coleman, welcome to Henry Now and Now and Then. It's just an absolute pleasure to be here with you on the podcast, a real honor, so thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Strawn, you wrote me a letter this spring and you said, I'm a solo musician turned writer thanks to a long journey of chronic illness, but I'm passionate about prayer and about the kind of prayer that soaks up all of life, catching us up into God. I've given my life to that calling. Tell us about this calling on your life and help us understand what beholding prayer is all about. Yeah, so I, I'm actually... I'm one of those people that have become a happy accident really in my life. I was a musician for so long, doing a lot of travel, doing a lot of ministry really, and and just loving the creative life, loving that kind of lifestyle. When I um, had this collision with a long journey of chronic illness and the process for me was, I mean, there's a lot in there we could get into, but it was essentially a a whole life crisis, sort of mental, physical, spiritual. And in that process, kind of out of that collision came to this place of realizing that I'd misdiagnosed this whole God thing that I had really had this working relationship with God when he desired a deep, deep friendship. And so in that process, I ended up having myself rewired and my life rewired and out of that just kind of felt this deep sense of wanting to share prayer with others, I guess, because prayer is really the heartbeat of the relationship with God. You know, we the word prayer for me, is you could use, you know, intermingling with God or union with God or intimacy or friendship. All of these things are interchangeable. And I just kind of came out of that season thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to give my life to helping others to understand and hear the story of my transition, but to find in themselves that deep longing for God and to access that through knowing him in their life and in prayer. And, and really, that's what beholding is. Beholding is our gazing lovingly into God as he gazes lovingly back into us. It's a life lived in the divine gaze. And so the book is kind of tells my story of how I sort of hit a brick wall at 100 miles an hour and found a more beautiful way of life and prayer and then is sort of unwinding this concept of beholding and what if we could see prayer differently? What if what if prayer became this beautiful life source for us and not a burden or something that generates anxiety or stress or wears us out? You certainly um you certainly spoke to me, to be quite honest, as I as Amazing. as I um 
read, I, it, it, there was subtlety in it, but my, there was also such honesty. And uh, so I have journeyed with you through the book. I love, I, do you mind if I read a quote here? Uh, your friend, uh, John Mark Comer, he yeah. wrote the introduction to the book and he said, my friend Strawn has written a liturgy for the ache. He's put lyrics and music and melody to the deepest desire of the heart, the desire for God, not just to know about God as a cliche goes, but to know God by direct experience. And it's interesting because I think in order for that to, in a way, be true, it's you've had to peel away things, peel away um, the false way we know God in prayer. Take us on that journey. Tell us how you got there. Can you just break it down a little bit for me so that we can understand? I I want people to come away from this going, oh my, there's something there for me. And I want them to come away going, "Um, I want to buy this book. And and, and I really truly want them to buy the book because I having read it, I I, I was, uh, you know, pleased as soon as I was finished it, I I ordered one for a friend because I went, this is good stuff. So just take us on this journey a little bit. Yeah. So I I think, um, what happened to me was when I became sick and I became sick for quite a long time, I spent almost two years sort of, I probably would have spent maybe 70% of my time in bed, you know, just full of illness. And I was spending hundreds of dollars on vitamins, thousands of dollars on doctors and alternative doctors and treatments, all trying to diagnose something that they couldn't figure out, still haven't actually really figured out what happened. Um, And I think what happened in that process was, you know, we come to God with so many ideas about who he is and what he wants. And and we have, I think this, we have been shaped so much in this, in the consumerism of our world. You know, everything is a product to be consumed. Everyone is an opportunity for gain. And so when we come to God, I had brought this consumerism to him. I had come to God seeking things like meaning in life or healing or or music or ministry and all of these things. But I'd also assumed that God wanted things out of me, that I was a product to be consumed, that what God most cared about was what I did for him, who I told about him, how I loved, you know, what I knew, how often I went to church. And so when, when you're just sick all of this time, and I could no longer perform for God, I had no metrics, you know, there was no way for me to say, Here's, here's the good things that I'm doing, or you know, there's only so much repentance or intercession before you run out of prayer, you run out of your list. And I think I got to the end of that list and I got to the end of those works and I had to ask myself the question, does God love me or not? Because I have nothing to give. I, there, outside of my existence as a very sick, struggling person, you know, at that time in my life, I had two kids, we had no money. I thought I was dying. You know, I was having panic attacks sometimes two or three times a day. Just war, am, I, am I dying? Am I leaving my family behind it? What's going on? And God wasn't speaking to me in the way that I was used to. He wasn't healing me. There were no answers. And so there were two questions. Does God love me as I am um, or doesn't he? And then the second question was, if God is good, then he's a kind of good that I I don't understand yet. And so what happened for me was. Um, I accepted that God was good and I went on a journey of discovering him outside of the things that he offers me, you know, outside of him healing me or making sense of my situation or providing. It was like God has to become the most beautiful thing for me. Uh, otherwise, this gospel feels a little bit lost. And I 
I think when I think of the gospel, I think so many of us have been taught that, you know, um, the gospel is about Jesus dying for us. And, and that's true. But the wider story here, and this is what I love about Henry Nguyen's work is, you know, I remember reading um, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it was so mind-blowing to me, this whole concept that God desires friendship and welcoming and forgiveness and reconciliation. The greatest intention of God is friendship. And so when I went through that experience, I kind of dropped this consumerism of, okay, if God is good, then he has to be good in and of himself, not just what he gives to me. And actually, that's where prayer and communion really opened up. He became so much more mysterious than I'd ever imagined, but also so much more beautiful and kind and compassionate. I found that he was sitting with me in my sickness and my weakness and my despair. And as we sat together, I began to be transformed. And yeah, so I think for me, the greatest invitation in all of that is can we know God for just who he is outside of our boxes and paradigms and what he offers us and just learn to enjoy him forever? Now, I'm just going to say to our listeners, you're hearing a little bit of buffering because keep in mind, we're the other side of the world. My friend Strawn is, is in uh, New Zealand and I'm in I'm in Toronto, Canada. And so I just encourage you not to give up, but listen on. Um, I, I love that. Uh, I love, I love what you've got, got to share, Strawn, and, and I don't want us to miss it. And I, so I would just encourage people, hang in there. Okay, hang in there. There's There's good stuff coming. One of the things that was so striking to me about, in a sense, the shift or the understanding that you you got of God was it wasn't just about forgiveness, but it was about reconciliation. Help us understand why that's so different, but so core to our relationship. What does it mean to be reconciled? Lovely big word. What does it mean to you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's so helpful to contrast the two. You know, forgiveness is a clearing of debt. It is, it's a legal thing and it's important, right? I mean, if someone came into my house and stole my things and I discovered them, I'd have a choice, two choices to make. I could take them to court and make them pay or out of a pure act of love and grace. And it is grace. I could say, I forgive you your debt uh, and I could send them on their way and they would be fine. And I think a lot of people see what Jesus did as, as pure forgiveness Um and so the main topic of conversation is always sin. It's just always forgiveness of sin, dealing with sin, shame, guilt, and coming to God in a legal sense. But reconciliation is the restoration of friendship. It's actually, it goes a step further. And so in that same example, it's not just, hey, you know, I'm not going to take you to court for stealing my stuff. It is, tell me about your part of my life. Come and eat my family. Let's go fishing together. Let's spend time. You know, I mean, we wouldn't do that with anyone's reconciliation. is totally unsatisfied with the status quo. It wants to embrace. It wants to engulf. And I mean, the story is that God is now homed in us, that he didn't just say, okay, go along your way. I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. He said, I long to live inside of you. I want to be so close. I want to make my new temple your body so that we can be in absolute closeness and belovedness and intimacy together. And so reconciliation is God chasing us. It is God um, seeking us, longing for us. And when he gets us, taking pleasure in us and longing for us 
to take pleasure in him. If, if it's just about forgiveness, and then all our prayers are transactional. We're just getting things done. We're clearing debt. We're, we're making progress. We're asking for others' debt to be cleared. But as soon as you, you walk into friendship, prayer becomes about um, coexistence and silence and beauty and intermingling and a deep sense of belovedness in God. And that's a wild adventure. You know, um, one of the phrases I came across in your book, which just struck a note with me, some of us believe we're forgiven, but we don't think we're liked. And it mm. seems to me that you don't have a real friendship unless you really trust that God likes you, mm. that this one that you're reaching out to worship and adore and commune with actually mm. likes you. Can you just open that up for us a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know why we say this. We say this saying all the time. I love you, but I don't like you right now. And it's I've never understood <laughs> it. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, you kind of create a rule that it's possible to love someone and not like them. And I guess I understand the sentiment. There is something in there that I, I do get. Um, but I think we can work back to God that way. We can. I think we can make this idea in the in the church, especially in the way we talk about God, where we think, God had to die for us and God did what he had to do to make things right. Like he was kind of, his arm was twisted because we were so bad. Um, and it's just so, it just lacks so much of the trueness of who God is that he didn't, he, his arm wasn't twisted. He loves to, and longs to chase us. And I think about songs cause you know, songs for so long and um, songs are a strange thing. They, they kind of come out of nowhere. They're quite mystical. And then they sort of come out of you and, a good song, you see all of yourself in it, and in some ways, none of yourself. It, it becomes something else once it's there, a bit like a child, actually. Um, and when I think about a song, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether a song is perfect or someone may like it, someone may not. It's a part of me. It's a part of my creativity, my expression, and I love it for all of its intricacy, all of its frailty. And I just see us as the same. You know, Ephesians talks about us, us being God's masterpiece, his poem. And I think there's the sense in which God just finds so much beauty in the poem of each one of us, of who we are, and he takes pleasure in us. And it's so horrible to reduce that to, well, God loves me because he has to, but he doesn't like me, as in like, he doesn't really like being around me. I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a, a jerk sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'm a bit grumpy in the morning. But actually, God anticipates us waking in the morning, and he's singing over us as we sleep. And he just looks at us like a parent looks at their child and says, my, my, child, my son, my daughter, I just... I want to spend time with you. I like you. And I think that's that's hard for so many of us to wrap our heads around, but that is the true miracle of the loving Trinity. It's, it's profound. Now you write something in this book that just is absolutely so original and it comes right out of New Zealand, right out of the Maori tradition. Please tell us about the, I don't even know if, I, if I'm going to pronounce it right, but the divine Hongi, is that what you is that how you yeah. pronounce it? Yeah. Tell us about that. This is just absolutely fabulous. You'll love it. Listen to this. Yeah, so the Hongi is a um a tradition, a Maori tradition here in Aotearoa, um, where you may you know, if you're listening, you may have seen it sometimes, especially if foreign leaders come to New Zealand. It's the pressing of um the forehead to another. Um and in that, there is this kind of intentional intermingling of breath. And so Māori will hongi one another. They'll often hongi uh, Pākehā, which is someone who's a non-Māori, as a way of welcoming them onto a marae, their kind of gathering place, or even into the country. And it's very intimate. I mean, you're literally, you know, 
face to face, touching face to face with a complete stranger. You know, if you've got bad breath, you notice that. It could be like a few seconds long. I've been hongied for minutes long before. But the whole idea is that you are each intermingling your breath and and sort of become there's a unity there. There's like an otherness in which it's not just like a you know, in, in my culture in, in Western culture, Pakia culture, it's like Kia ora, you know, welcome, shake hands. It's very transactional, but this is very relational. And so it reminded me of um, Genesis, where when we awake to creation, you know, it says God breathed his breath of life into our nostrils and we became a living being. And I kind of imagine this as a divine hongi in which God sort of gets down on his hands and knees and spreads himself out across us, this kind of lump of clay. We're just there, this inanimate soiled object and um, he breathes he hongies us presses his face against ours which is deeply intimate and he hongies us and his breath enters us and we awake and our eyes open and the first experience we have is of this face-to-faceness with god of complete like a child coming out of its mother's womb and being wrapped around the chest it's like we are wrapped around the chest of god in this divine hongi and you know, in the Hongi, you're welcomed not only into that person, but into their community and into the land. And so I kind of see this divine Hongi as God saying, welcome to the world with me. Welcome to my life. And I try and make the point in the book that um, what what God has done, what Jesus has done, doesn't take us back to the fall. It takes us back to that moment that, that it restores. And you see Jesus later on, um, this weird example where he breathes into all the disciples, you know, after he's resurrected. And I kind of tip my hat to it and say, you know, again, he's reminding us of this divine hongi, which is, I am restoring to you that kind of life, that face-to-faceness, that intermingling of breath. Uh, and I just think that's such a beautiful image uh, for the for the gospel, for reconciliation and friendship. I love that image. It was It was fresh to me, but immediately you do see him returning to the disciples and, and breathing on them knowing that it was the God who breathed in, into it's us blessed. life in the first, first place. I, it is it's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. This book, mm-hmm. Beholding, is, is, really, is really peeling away, I think, some of the barriers in, our, in our, our minds, in my mind, to God's love. It's very, very intimate. It's very life-giving, really. You have some interesting things that you invite us to look at. Uh, I, I mean... Uh, one of them is other seeking. Maybe just explore that a little bit. What do you mean by other seeking? I think once you start to to gaze upon God, and I'm sure so many have had this experience, where as you as you become vulnerable toward God and you recognize all of your shadows and ickiness and all, that, and you receive God's love there, and you can kind of maintain this gaze with God, this loving gaze where He sees all of you and loves and accepts that, and then you see all of God and love and accept what you can't understand. It starts to build this muscle for um, starting to see others in the same way. It starts to help you to. Um, so if if the if the gospel is all about sin and transaction, that's all we will essentially see in the other person. If we are sin obsessed with ourselves. The first thing we're going to see in anyone else is their shortfalls and their brokenness. But if through prayer and through beholding, we can practice to see, see God for who he is beyond our understanding and for to receive his love beyond our shortfalls, 
then we're kind of practicing the spiritual muscles for seeing uh, the image of God in others before we see their distortion and their brokenness. And so I spend a bit of time in the book talking about how this kind of prayer actually rewires our brains and rewires our souls so that we begin to seek the image of God in others. And we can look at someone and the first thing we see is we're able to celebrate the beauty and the wonder almost like kind of divine anthropologists, kind of where can we find God in this person or in this culture or in this way? And I, I, I actually suggest in the book that I wonder if this is part of the reason we have so much destructive dialogue in the world is that we have reduced God to some someone or something we can understand. And therefore, when we can't understand something, we, we sort of disown it or we rail against it. And, and actually practicing prayer can help us to see others and seek God in others in a new and profound way. And I sort of make the case that I, that was a, a strange phenomenon in my life. It was a beautiful surprise that I, I kind of, my enemies started to become my friends and I started to weep for people that before I just couldn't understand. And it, and it wasn't necessarily, there was any other massive understanding change. It was almost like a change in my person through prayer. And that was a beautiful outcome. I want to go back and ask that question about the word beholding. Mm. It's an unusual word that you've chosen. It's, it's the cover of the book. And it, it's, it's very sweet because it says here, it says, deepening our experience in God. Why beholding? Why that word? What? It, it's kind of unusual, to be quite honest. Yeah. I, I thought it was unusual. Yeah. Tell, tell me what was behind that choice. It was just it was just the word that came to me. I think I think that I was looking for a language for just staring at God. But staring feels so disconnected and and you know weird. And so how do you how do you kind of present prayer as a looking upon God? And beholding beholding for me raised sort of mem- thoughts of um a beautiful vista, you know, beholding it's sort of the sense of you're not just looking, but you're actually trying to, you are trying to hold it. You're, you are being held and you are being a person that holds. It's a sense of how do I carry this image in my life? How do I carry this beauty and this presence of God? And beholding for me embodied that. It sounded more like just, you know, it's not just conscious mental dialogue. It's not just staring at God. It is the sense of learning to hold him and all his beauty and goodness and truth within myself. And so the word just kind of bubbled up and I actually found out there's a bit of a tradition of the word. Um, Others have used it in the past, which is really cool. Uh, I didn't realize that until after I wrote the book and it felt like a really happy, a happy uh, learning when I found that out. But yeah, that's sort of what it means for me. It's interesting because one of the things that I could sort of feel as I read the book was I kind of felt the similarity of our backgrounds. I, I felt that you had come out of probably what might have been a charismatic, evangelical, Mm -hmm. Protestant background. But what is so wonderful in the book is your discovery of all these beautiful, rich, deep uh, traditions that are speaking into your life in a new way. And so Mm. the book has, it it has um, mysticism and contemplativeness and so many things that, that to me were, um, were genuinely, um, almost like fresh discoveries for you. Maybe tell us a little mm. bit about that part of this journey. You're right. I mean, I, I do. I come from a, a, a charismatic background, which I'm deeply grateful for, and is, is just so much a part of my DNA still. Uh, but I think that there is this sort of 
anti-historical you know undergirding there and i don't think it's very spoken it's just more you know highlights the spontaneous and the fresh and history kind of starts at azusa street or you know jonathan you know um whitfield and that so when i started to discover things like the jesus prayer which is a very very ancient meditative prayer you know like son of son of david lord jesus son of david have mercy on me um, and the repeat, repetitiveness of that prayer or of silence and solitude and how ancient it was, it didn't at all strike me like I had to give up one for the other. They felt like invitations into a deeper experience of God. And so I was like a kid in a candy shop, man. I'm like, what? You know, there's all these prayer books, you know, I'm discovering that there's all these prayer books and this tradition and this beautiful language, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the language of how to approach prayer and the Catholic tradition of belovedness and intimacy. And, oh, I was just stunned. And I started to just read these books like I was drinking water and it just felt so beautiful. And and so I did feel like, man, where has this tradition been my whole life of, you know, yeah, practices like silence and solitude and the Jesus prayer and sort of liturgy and um, and beholding and contemplations. And it just, it felt like it layered in so perfectly with my um, my charismatic background. Again, it just felt like I was getting deeper and deeper invitations to participate. And really what the charismatic heart is with God. Um, so very cool. Yeah, very cool experience for me. It's interesting to me because one thing that uh, just reminded me so much of Henry Nouwen. Henry loved to celebrate the Eucharist and he did it every day. And he invited the people that were with him to join in. Mm -hmm. And I have just just the sense that that was central to his life. And, I, mm -hmm. and you begin to really in a fresh and in a deeper way, explore the Eucharistic life and, um, mm. you know, really have a deeper understanding of what that table is about and what the elements are about. I, I think it's, I think this kind of very honest and genuine discovery that you share in the book, it makes it a book that's going to be valuable for everyone um, because mm -hmm. we can be celebrating all those little details and yet we can have in a way lost the profundity of what they bring to us and their and mm. the the way in which they they are our tools of communing with our father and with our and with Jesus mm. and with the Holy Spirit. I, I really enjoyed that. Um and I just found myself thinking this guy and Henry would just be really good friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I read his books all the time and I'm like, man, I wish I could just sit down with a coffee with this person and I, I, you know, the Eucharist, you, you know, I dedicate a whole chapter to the Eucharist in the book because it had such a profound impact in reshaping the entire framework of my faith. And uh, I, I think I see that same Eucharistic spirituality just, you know, Henry's just got such a beautiful way of landing it in in life. You know, I've always appreciated that about his work. It just, he can make some spiritual concept feel absolutely ingrained into community and existence and i think that that passion for eucharist that's that, that's where i see that playing out in the most beautiful way and it's such, been such a gift another thing that you bring in the book which is so absolutely needed at least in my life but i think in everybody's it's the word unnoising I, let's just open that one up. Let's yeah. let's explore that a little bit. Tell me why unnoising is is kind of a vital aspect of prayer and beholding. 
Well, for me, it was just, I mean, I'm a musician, so I'm, you know, for years, it was all music and culture and art. And I mean, I just love that. Uh, but I think what I realized, so I mean, be, becoming unwell, I was I was too unwell even to watch Netflix or listen to podcasts. And actually, for years, I didn't even really read much books, many books. And so my life became incredibly quiet and not just in a, like a physical sense, but in just a mental sense too. And I think what happened for me during that time was I realized how much of God I met and understood and how much transformation took place over the slow distilling of my life. And and there, the less noise in my life there was, uh, the, the, the deeper the work that seemed to take place. And it wasn't intentional. It was just there was less going on and therefore I was able to reflect less on God, more on God and notice him more. And so I talk in the book about unnoising because we live in an insanely noisy world. You know, I love, um, you know, John Mark Comer has done some work on this and bringing to light that we live in an attention economy. In other words, people, you know, a multi, hundreds of billions of dollar industry is deeply focused and obsessed with getting our attention. And so we have the noise of the news. We have the noise of all the technology we have, the noise of a busy post-industrial life, but we also have the noise of anxiety and depression and fear and shame. We have a lot of internal noise too. And so part of part of my journey and, and what I'm saying in the book is we need to actually remove so much of that noise. Otherwise, when we do turn our hearts toward God or when we do come to spend time with him, it will be like hitting a brick wall at 100 miles per hour because God is not one to compete with our noise. He doesn't shout over all of it. He's the sort of gentle whisper that waits underneath us, waiting to be found, waiting to be discovered. And so I found practices in my life like listening to less music or less podcasts. And, you know, I can be pretty book hungry and spend spill all of my time reading books. And sometimes I have to peel back and say, I'm just going to actually I'm just going to peel back from that, you know, social events and overworking so that in unnoising my life, the the bubbled voice of God could bubble up and, you know, the silence, the quietness, the beauty can bubble up and I can actually come down to God's level rather than shouting around over all this noise saying, God, speak to me and be with me. And he's like, like you know, I got to I want to slow my life down. I want to unnoise it so that I can listen to the voice of God and, and become aware of him within me. And so I think unnoising is actually the first place to begin with a prayer life. In the book, you talk about uh, welcome boredom and why would we welcome boredom? But it's a really interesting thing. It's like, how am I going to put space in my world for God? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of make the statement that boredom is a human right. <laughs> you know, that actually boredom is we should, you know, if, we sh if we're doing life right, we should have so many moments where we just go, I'm bored. Um, and I think the main reason we don't is purely because of our phones. You know, we fill up, every, you know, we're waiting in line at the supermarket. We whip out our phone. I mean, you sit at a restaurant and you watch with people at a table. If there's a couple, one goes to the toilet. The first thing the other person does is they get out their phone. Um, and as an artist, actually, this is really an artist's lesson for me is that uh, the more boredom I create in life, the more songs I would write, the more poems I would write. And uh, I also noticed that the more boredom there was in my life, the more that God, I felt God, quote unquote, speaking to me. So I actually think the best thing we can do to get bored is just put our phones away, have really good phone habits, you know, don't just, let's not open it up straight before breakfast or after dinner or when someone goes to the bathroom or when we're standing in line or we're bored for a moment. Let's actually just take some time to just let our brains 
all the, the activity of our brains and the sediment fall to the bottom that we can find clarity. Uh, and I think we just live in a society that thinks we have to be doing something all the time. And it's the worst thing for our brains. And it's certainly the worst thing for our communion with God, uh, because we're just putting a time in our calendar and saying, God, can you show up then, please? And he's like, I want to live my whole life with you. Uh, but we're so unconscious, you know, we're so unconscious in our life by by keeping busy all the time. And I think boredom, boredom has to be reclaimed, man. Bring boredom back. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Here's a lovely quote from from my friend, Strawn. Building a prayer life is about one thing, a lived and continuous experience of the wonder that is God. But it won't happen spontaneously or by accident, at least not in a lifetime. To create a life of communion, we need to slowly build habits into our lives that draw us near to him. Uh, I think, Strawn, this, this book has some wonderful ideas about how to build those habits and building those habits have a lot to do with letting go of some of the bad habits that uh, maybe crowd out the presence mm. of God, the communion mm. that he's offering us, the friendship, the, the intimacy that he's offering. You have uh, given us a real treasure here. I, I'm going to encourage people to go get the book. Um, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with today? I mean, my if I had any final thought, it would be that, you know, so much of our lives, we spend our time hoping and waiting for God to appear or to receive his love. And I think the biggest lesson for me was just love is a, that God's love is a reality that we, we just accept. It's not something that we strive for or we burden for the best thing we can do to bring a love from a theological concept in our mind that God loves me into my being is just to spend time every day sitting and just saying, God, I accept and receive your love. You know, it's we, we, we don't need to ask for it. It is poured out constantly like a river, like the sun shines on the earth. So God's love is for us. And so I just encourage anyone who's listening, if you feel like you have a deficit of love in your life, just to begin with your coffee in the morning and just sit there and say, God, I receive your love and I return it back to you. Would you be with me? And I think that to me, is the deepest meaning of life and it's the gift of God. So yeah, I encourage you with that. Oh my goodness. You're a treat. You're a deep oh, treat. Thanks, Karen. It's really such a, a true honor to be, um, to spend some time with you and to talk. And I'm just, yeah, very generous. And I'm so sorry about the internet connection. I, it's not normally like that. I don't know why it's done that today. It's just <laughs> always the, always the way when the moment matters, but I'm um, oh, so honored to be on this, on this podcast and to talk with you and so glad that you enjoyed the book actually it just means a yeah. lot so oh yeah. yeah no really loved it no it's a sure sign i loved it if i buy it for somebody you know yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that's the way that's it should be cool. you know that you go this is the right book for this person and yeah. and i was thinking particularly of somebody going through that valley of physical discomfort pain yeah. really pain yeah. you know it gets pretty miserable you, what you've it described yeah. i have friends that are there and it gets so hard to to walk with God through that and then come out on the other side. So yeah, that meant yeah. a lot. Anyway, bless you. Thank you. You too. All right. Blessings. Bye-bye. I hope all of you listening to this podcast have enjoyed what Strawn has shared. I encourage you to buy the book, Beholding. It's a beautifully deep book that opens us up to a profound dimension of reconciliation to God and offers us such intimacy with our Heavenly Father. I hope you've already signed up to receive our free daily meditations written by Henry Nouwen. 
If not, you can do that on our website at henrynowen.org. Remember, they're free, and they're a wonderful way to stay informed about the various things we have to offer to those who are enjoying the writings and the teachings of Henry Nowen. We'd also be so grateful if you would consider donating to the Henry Nowen Society. Your resources help us share the daily meditations and these podcasts right around the world. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take time to give us a review or a thumbs up or pass this on to your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Until next time.